Hello and welcome to episode 415 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host John, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing the best rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues talk on the net. Episode 415, we're joined by uh, three special guests we have joining us. Joseph Michael of the band Sanctuary, uh, who will be coming in to do a show in Pittsburgh on uh, July 17th. Uh, classic thrash band. Also joining us, we have... Sebastian Thomas of the band Baroness, who will also be in Pittsburgh on the 17th of July. Uh, so you can kind of choose your varieties of, uh, of metal. Uh, Sebastian, obviously, the band Baroness, uh, will be coming in to do a show at Mr. Small's Theater. And then we have joining us uh, the rock doctor, Neil Ratner, uh, who has got a new book, well, not a new book, but a, a memoir out about his time in the music business. Uh, as you can, you will be able to tell from the interview, he's a fantastic storyteller and got a lot of amazing life experience to share. So, we're going to start with uh, Joseph Michael of the band Sanctuary. Joseph was brought in, as we talk about in the interview, to complete a tour after the passing of Warl Dane to fill some contractual obligations for the band. Obviously, got on well enough with the, the surviving members of the band, uh, so was uh, summarily put in the position of vocalist uh, to secede uh, the world after his untimely passing. Uh, obviously uh, not the best of six situations to get involved with a band, but uh, certainly different than many of the bands who fire their singers or singers quit. It's certainly a different situation. Uh, they're going to be touring uh, this this most of the summer to support the uh, 30th anniversary of their uh, landmark album, Refuge Denied. Uh, so you can check them out playing that in their entirety at Craft uh, House in Pittsburgh on the 17th. So we're going to play you a little classic sanctuary and get into that interview with Joseph Michael.
and gentlemen, my pleasure to welcome the Iron City Rocks we have on the phone, Joseph Michael of Sanctuary. How you doing, Joseph? Hey, what's up, man? I'm doing well. Great, great. Uh, you have uh, stepped into the band uh, Sanctuary, uh, obviously filling in for the late Warrell, um, and we're going to be rolling into Pittsburgh to do a show on the 17th with with the guys in the band. Can you talk a little bit about you? You know your, you know how you came to even you know get involved with the band and and what that experience has been like for you so far. Sure. Um, the uh, well, Sanctuary had a tour booked with Iceter and uh, my guitar player in my other band Witherfall he's also the guitar player in Iceter so I I had already planned on coming to a couple of the shows and hanging out I'd sure. met Lenny and Worrell you know before at a show and uh, I'd met you know the guys in Iceter a couple times so I, you know I already was planning on coming to some of these shows and then one night, uh, Jake and I, we were up to like 7 a.m. writing some songs for the, ne- the second Witherfall record. And we saw, posted on Facebook uh, from one of World's solo band guys that he passed away just out of the blue. So uh, I messaged, you know, the guys at Century Media, um, our A&R guy, Philip, if it was true. And, and he said, yeah. And uh, so I like, well, fuck, what the hell? Like, what's going to happen to Sanctuary? Mm-hmm. You know, who, who's Iceberg going to get to open for that? And, and we, you know, we didn't really hear much. And then one day John Schaefer messaged me and asked me if I'd be into, you know, helping those guys. Sure. You know, continue their obligations, you know, to do the tour because... I don't know how much you know about the business, but at that point, you know, you got a you got a deposit on the bus, you got all yeah. this other stuff. That, uh, I mean, it wasn't just money; those guys were really itching to go out and play, and and we figured it'd be a good good tribute to World to continue that tour. And yeah, I mean, basically, it's just John Schaefer just happened to remember me. From you know Jake, Jake's other band, and they sent Lenny first record. He was uh, he's like maybe I think maybe he can do it. I think maybe he can pull it off. Was it is it was it a situation where you know you kind of go back because I mean even Warrell's voice very different uh, you know through the years uh, between what he did there and then Nevermore uh, was it something you were comfortable singing or do you kind of just when, when you're approaching something like that, do you just look at more, okay, here's the vocal melody. As I hear it, here's what my voice does. I'm going to kind of do, you know, what Joseph does, not necessarily what Warrell did. That's actually a good question. Um, there's there's a little bit of overlap between mm-hmm. our styles, and, you know, luckily there's a little bit of overlap between what I do and what he did in both eras. Sanctuary, mm-hmm. and then Nevermore, You the Sun Died era, Sanctuary. Sure. So I'm not, I'm in no way like a replica. Uh, you know, I can't, I'm not like a sound alike, you know? Right. And I knew I knew that going in, I was not going to go, going to be able to go in and just sound like a jukebox. Right. But I knew I could, I had the range to hit everything that was on the old records. And I also have a little bit of, you know, a more aggressive sound going on. 
So the, the modern stuff, like Year of the Sun Dive, wasn't going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, you get people that are like hardcore world aim fanatics. I mean, I, I admit I was one of them, you know? Sure. Uh, that are going to nitpick. And they're like, well, his voice doesn't do this on that note. And I was like, well, yeah, because it's not the same human being. Yeah, if you if you sounded the same, I, I honestly think sometimes that would be somewhat lame. Um, well, you, you I mean, know. even World didn't sound like... There was never one time where World sounded like everything from his entire catalog. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. early on, he didn't sound like he did in Nevermore, and then later on in his career, he didn't sound like he did on Refuge Tonight. It's just the biology of it, you know, of being a vocalist. Sure. Yeah, I mean, you, you age over time, you change the styles of the way you sing, you know, life, you know, has its effects on vocal cords over time. You know, I know. Yeah, it's not like you're. It's not like being a guitar player. You know, you where you just pick up the instrument and it, mm-hmm. it's there. You know, you get it intonated and you're ready to go. Like your health has a lot to do with how you sound and what you're sure. able to pull off technically. Was it? And this this may sound like a really strange question, but <laughs> was the fact that you know Warrell passed? Did that make the acceptance you felt from the fans maybe a little bit easier than if you had stepped into a situation where, and the, you know this happens in every band, you know they threw the singer out or the singer quit over an ego thing and they got somebody to stand in. Um, was this maybe a slightly easier situation because you know no one expects Warhol to sing obviously at this point. Yeah, I I I think that I don't know if I would have made the same decision if if that was the case. Mm-hmm. Um. I, if there was just like a squabble between the band and, and yeah. Warl, uh I yeah, I don't know. I, I, I what, you know, in situations like that, when when that's going on, the bands usually have someone in mind. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like that, you that usually is coming down the pike for you know a, a good length of time. Right. And then when it finally pops, they usually have a guy ready to go. But yeah, I don't I don't know if I would have said yes to that sort of thing. Yeah, and that's a good point. I mean, plus, you know, in your situation where you maybe, you know, and we've seen this how many times where, you know, somebody is brought in to replace the voice, and then you're constantly looking over your shoulder to when they're going to reunite, you know, when money is tight enough that, you know, or, or time has gone on enough that people don't care about some squabble they had 17 years ago, and people could use some nice checks that, you know... We could, you know, make a lot of money yeah, by getting X, Y, Z back to you know whichever singer well, you, back in the You get band. one shot with that. You only get one shot. It's like if the next, if the record with the new guy makes more money than the last record with the old guy, yeah, then you're good. But if it doesn't, then you know you're probably not. Yeah, and so maybe thing. maybe Van Halen might be the one exception to that. You know, I, I you know I'm not sure exactly. I never looked at exactly how 5150 sold to, to some of the other Van Halen catalog, but it was certainly well, a success. But you know, people still clamor. I'm sorry. Was fair warning the last one with Dave? Um, 84, 1984 was the last one with Dave, and then you know they did ah. 5150, and, and boy, I bet those two you know were off both awfully successful, but still, I mean, sure. the whole time through the Van Halen with Sammy Hagar era, you still wanted, you know, those of us who were too young to see him with Dave at the time wanted Dave, you know, it's, you know, unfortunately, and look at the poor guys in Kiss, you know. You know, you you go along, they make great albums with no, you know, with that and then no makeup air, and then oh, they want to put the makeup on because the money's too good, and you're put out to pasture. Yeah. You know? 
you know, um, it. I mean, Van Halen lucked out. I mean, they they changed their sound, yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. But they still had you know strong songwriting, even if you know you or I might not yeah. like it as much as the older stuff. It's still they're still writing good songs, yeah, you know, arguably. Yeah. You know, the same thing with Kiss, the songwriters are still there. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, yeah. Joseph, you guys, speaking of songwriting, uh, there in a new album in the works for Sanctuary? Yes. Um, yeah, we do, actually. You want to talk about um, how you know how that process is coming along, where you're at in the, in the process? Yeah, well, let's see. We, we, we finished that tour... And then Jake and I went in to do a Witherfall record. So we didn't really start the writing process until mm, perhaps August or September of last year. So we haven't even been at it for a year. Um, And it's basically the way Sanctuary works, and from what I understand how they've always worked, is that Lenny will kick around some ideas and some riffs and then he'll send them over to Worrell, or now me, sure. and see what, you know, if anything strikes in there, like the melody pops in, or, mm-hmm. you know, an idea, a theme. Then it gets kicked back over to Lenny, and if he likes that, then he goes in with Dave, and then, you know, we'll all get together and see if we can come up with some arrangements. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really like an old school way of working. Sure. You know, where it's, yeah, it's not something I'm used to. I'm used to kind of writing whole cloth, like, right. you know, from from head to paper. Like, it's all, it's either myself alone or, like, you know, me and Jake sitting there and just writing it out. And then we don't even touch it with a drummer or any other musician until we're in the studio. These guys act like an old school band where sure. it's like everything gets passed to the next guy until it passes everyone a month <laughs> Is it um, a, a challenge, you know, when you're trying to put a, a vocal melody, a vocal uh, to new material for Sanctuary, you know, based on your experience with Witherfall, you know, where you're, you know, you're the architect of the band's sound, you know, you, you guys have built that band to what it is, but mm-hmm. with Sanctuary, you're, you're you don't want to say in, in somewhat of a template, but in, in some ways you might be, you know, where you don't want to necessarily go out and go in total left field from maybe some of the you know the band's history is that a challenge for you yeah uh not so much um you know like i, I don't want to give letty too much credit but mm-hmm. <laughs> he's kind of the foundation like everything sure. is kind of written around you know his weird you know riff style like he has a he's a very uh signature thing that goes on and even between Year the sun died and some like refuge. It's a different tuning, you know. It's a little more modern in like the production, but it's the same kind of riffs going on, you know. That whole Locrian thing, flat fifth, flat second. Like, right. I don't know. Like, to me, like if you took those refuge riffs and dropped them down and played them at a mid tempo, you would get very similar results to refuge. No, I don't. I don't really have. I don't. I don't really have any sort of problems or issues or hang-ups. I'm not really trying to write... Uh, I'm not I'm not shooting to write a sanctuary record. I'm just trying to write good songs, and then the sound of the band will take care of that, I think. 
Yeah, and that, that's a great point. I mean, you know, you, you kind of hit the nail. You're not trying to write a, you know, a specific album. And some bands certainly do. You know, you can tell, you know, when they replace mm -hmm. you know, certain members of a band that they still strive, you know, you know, even the primary songwriter. I can think of bands where, you know, without naming names, where you can look at it and say, okay, <laughs> the guy who wrote all the songs is gone from the band, but somehow they still kind of sound the same. Maybe not up to par, but, you know, mm -hmm. still in the very, it does almost sometimes reek of a formula, you know. Um, yeah, it, for sure, and I probably know who you're talking about, but we won't name names. No, um, no, names <laughs> of... Like, the best example of this, and it's on such a higher level, but as far as commercial, you know, commerciality or acceptance is ACDC. They didn't yeah. come out and try to rewrite Highway to Hell when when Bond died you know when Brian Johnson came in they just came in and wrote the best songs they could and you still got that ACDC sound because of the drums bass and guitar yeah you know? yeah like but that that record like sounds nothing like old ACDC to me but yet you know what 30 30 years later 40 yeah. years later that's what you think of when you, when you say ACDC yeah, and it's interesting. You do almost think of them as, as you know, they do have such a commonality, but but two distinct parts. You know, where you know when mm -hmm. we were discussing Van Halen, some of the the Van Halen material uh, that you heard with with David maybe didn't work with Sammy or vice versa. Uh, you know, right. the ACDC stuff I think um, was more cohesive, but certainly a different flavor to it. But um, you know, it's, it's still a great analogy. So you guys are going to be doing a, a show on the 17th here in Pittsburgh. Um, are you? Is there one era of Sanctuary's catalog that maybe gets a little more in the set list? And, and will we hear any of the new stuff at this point, or is it still too soon? Well, this this uh, this run that we're doing is uh, it's going to be a celebration of Refuge Denied. The 30-year anniversary was a couple years ago, and uh, the band never got a chance to play that whole record in full. So we're going to go out and, and give it, you know, that celebration that it never got. Sure. We're going to play. We're going to play that record in full, from top to bottom, as well as some of the other songs. So we'll probably play for an hour and a half, or an hour and twenty minutes. Excellent. Well, we look forward to seeing you when you get into town. I know you guys have a bunch of dates in between here and here and there, but uh, 17th will be around before you know it, and we look forward to seeing you guys, man. Yeah, I look forward to these shows, man. It's going to be a lot of fun. All right, a thank you to Joseph Michael of Sanctuary again on the 17th of July at the Craft House in Pittsburgh. Also, same night, as I mentioned at the top of the show, at the Mr. Smalls Theater in uh, Millville, uh, certainly a little more closer into town and certainly a different variety of, of the heavy music obviously Sanctuary a classic thrash band a Baroness more of a doom sludge whatever you want to call it um, very unique sounding band uh, we have joining us uh, on the line momentarily Sebastian Thomas of the band The Drummer uh, they're from New York they've got an album out now Golden Grey uh, fantastic record we want to talk to them about uh, all things going on with Baroness. So without further ado, we'll play you some Baroness and get into that interview with Sebastian Thomas.
I'm doing great, thank you. Getting ready for the tour right now. Yeah, you guys are doing the, if I'm not mistaken, your first shows tomorrow in Lancaster, and then you're looping around and coming back down to us on the 17th. Um, how? That's right. When you're when you're preparing a tour like this as a drummer, um, do you have any special kind of regiment you do to kind of get yourself prepared for the rigors of the road, or or do you drum enough on the your time away to stay in road I mean, shape? Honestly, normally we are pretty good about uh, staying in shape and rehearsing for a tour, mm-hmm. but this time I. Because we're touring so much this summer, we only had one week off. Okay. And that's the week that I, I went to the beach with my family. Yeah. And then when I got back home, I had to do my United States citizenship interview because I'm not okay. a U.S. citizen. I just, and so that took up a day, and now we are packing for tour. So we have not rehearsed as much as we like to, but we all, I mean, the, 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 the short answer is you just have to keep on playing. Sure. Even if you're not rehearsing with a band, you just have to play every day because it's kind of like kind of like going it's like going to the gym or something. If you don't yeah. do it regularly, you you lose it. Right. You get a little sore after you maybe tomorrow night's show, but I'm sure by the second third date you're probably back in back in shape. Yeah, and it, 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 it's not also just like being sore; it's also just like you you have less fun if you're thinking about it too much. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. It's more enjoyable. It's more enjoyable when you're when you're really in the pocket and and confident and comfortable. Do you, you know, from a drummer's perspective, I'm sure some of these songs you probably could play without literally thinking, but I mean, some of the newer material, you know, from the new record, do you have to still kind of count parts out when you're doing them live? Maybe you haven't done them really since, you know, production? There are some, you're correct, there are some songs that I do have to count out parts, and they might be true for the other guys too, because um, for Golden Grey, we did not write everything before we went to the studio okay. Purple Purple we had pretty much written before the studio so this time we did write in the studio so there are some drum takes that are maybe two takes spliced together right that maybe didn't have all the guitar and bass parts on it yet so basically there are some songs that we never actually played all the way through as a band as a completed song so right. we had to you know because we were writing in the studio we had to sometimes learn songs that we had written sure so yes there is a little bit there is a little bit sometimes of um yeah a little bit of counting involved what happens i'm sorry yeah what happens eventually is after a while you stop counting because then you just you just you you hear the riff or the or whatever it is that 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 you hook on to and you don't have to count anymore when when you're doing stuff in the studio and obviously technology has changed a long ways um, you know, in the music industry where you can splice parts together, you can layer drums on top of drums. Do you ever find yourself in a situation where you're like, damn, I wish that didn't end up on tape because that's really hard to play uh, or not possible I mean, to play? Has that happened to you at, at any point? It's kind of the opposite. I, I will do things where I'm like, if there's certain drum ideas or styles that I have not mm. mastered, I will intentionally send that idea to John for him to start working on a song okay. so that way within a year I will have mastered it okay. it's a little bit selfish I know but yes there are definitely things on the albums where I'm like you know this is not really there might be some fill or, or groove that's not really in my truth that I then force myself to learn and it's really enjoyable because a year and a half later I look back and I'm like hey I can totally you know nail this now and right. a year and a half ago I didn't even know how to, how to do this 
so uh, it's so for me it's it, it's fun to continuously be challenging myself like that. Well, when you look at, I it, mean, but it, always always in a, in, a, in a musical way. Sure. Of it's not just it's not just some sort of puzzle. Or something. It's not it's not like that. When you're doing songs, you know, where you did them in the studio, or even specifically songs from the band's history prior to your your time with the band, do you tend to try to stay true to, you know, the album, or do you at some point say, okay, I need to make this, you know, in the case of the Legacy songs, S- Sebastian's drum parts, as opposed to, you know, doing uh, what Alan did? Yeah, I mean, when I think if there's been a sort of slight change mm-hmm. from maybe being 90% like what Alan played to now being sort of like 75% like what Alan played. Sure. But I, I, I too, I mean, I, I, it is important for me to, to, you know, th- there is a tradition in this band. Sure. And, there, and people love the albums of Alan and I love the, al- the albums of Alan and I love his playing and I, wa- and I think they're great drum parts. Mm-hmm. So I want, I want to, you know, I want to respect that and they're, they're, they're fun to play. I'm sorry, I'm getting another call in the line. I'm trying to ignore it. And, um, That's okay. Yeah, and, uh, and, uh, um, what was I talking about? Okay, Alan, yes. And so it, it is important for me to do, you know, some, something pretty close in the spirit of what you sure. did. However, I, I, I do find that, uh, that, like I said, over the last six years, maybe a little bit of my style. Sure. Yeah, I've often wondered that because you know, with with guitar players, you know, fans can be extremely critical, and even vocalists. You know, when when vocalists come in and, and replace someone, um, fans can be incredibly critical when you know if someone's yeah. voice isn't exactly the same, or you know, God yeah. forbid, you're using an orange amplifier instead of a Mesa boogie, and the tone isn't exactly, <laughs> exactly. right. Um, but I've exactly. often wondered how forgiving, you know people are when they critique drums because i think a lot of times you know for better or worse some of the drumming patterns can be over a lot of people's heads you know you you can tell if maybe something's wrong or you're not on the beat but you know yeah except for some of the neil peart well, type I mean, lines people don't memorize the drum parts maybe as much i mean i think i think alan was you know really really massive part of the band i mean mm-hmm. for for all the albums until the, the crash it was john and alan they were only mm-hmm. two constant members Mm-hmm. And so it's definitely a big deal for Baron Phoenix to have a new drummer. And right. I was definitely concerned about that. Mm-hmm. And then when we made Purple, I would look at the comments on YouTube, and I have to say, they were like 95% positive. Mm-hmm. Every now and again, you'll get somebody like, oh, you know, I like how Alan did this better or whatever. But most of them were like, oh, this is awesome. This new drummer is sick, whatever. You know, so yeah. it's been very positive. Do you take the, the negative remarks to heart? Because I mean, there's no shortage of negative comments on any band at any level. Um, if you find the right website, I don't take them to heart. I mean, like honestly, like this this album and Purple have mm-hmm. received a lot of criticism for the production. Right. And it's at, at this point, it's kind of like it's a little bit. It's almost like it's become like a joke to me. It's like, right. oh, here come the comments about the distortion or whatever, you know? Right. But. Uh, but I mean, you have to. I mean, the one answer is that musicians give like, hey, you know, you can't you can't worry about what the fans or critics say because then you'll just you're 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 at the mercy of you know other mm-hmm. people and you're not doing yeah. what, what what you need to do. That's one answer. The other answer is that you can you can develop a an, a talent for picking and choosing, right? Which I think I'm kind of I think I'm finally developing the talent where I can like enjoy that the positivity. 
and sort of ignore the negativity. Yeah, but I'm sure that takes some some work. Yeah, it definitely takes some work. They're always going to be critics. You know what I mean? It's like you just have to remember your favorite five bands in the world Mm -hmm. are going to get negative comments. Sure. You know the people that you that you admire the most that you think are you know demigods of music they get negative comments. Like it's fine. Yeah, even you know? the bands in stadiums, they seem to be a lightning rod for more criticism. You know, it's like the bigger you get, the more criticized. So sure. maybe it's a. Well, I mean, a, the, the best example always was was a Zeppelin, like consistently for the entire career, was panned by the critics. Mm-hmm. The critics hated Led Zeppelin. They were like, "This is awful. This is unmusical. This is noise or whatever." You know. So it is. It is what it is. Yeah. The, if, um, you're, if, if, if you're if you're making a living playing music people are coming out to see you play and that's your that's 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 victory in my mind sure as a as a drummer when you join the band you've had work uh, outside of the band uh, trans am and your solo stuff publicist etc yeah. how yeah. much did you have this style of playing in you or was some of this something you know you had to kind of work at fitting in the Baroness framework uh, for lack of a better term I mean was this a pretty comfortable playing style or is this something you had to kind of stretch your playing I mean it's it's a little bit of both I mean Alan and I do have some things in common Mm -hmm. and the way John Faisley always put it which I think is interesting is that Alan started out as a a punk and metal drummer who got Mm -hmm. Interested and dabbled in, you know, post rock and things like that. Right. And you know, underground music and progressive rock. And I'm kind of the exact opposite. I'm like yeah. a post rock drummer who always dabbled in heavier music. Right. But didn't wasn't it wasn't my bread and butter, right? Mm-hmm. So we we started at in opposite ends and kind of met in a similar place, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting. Yeah, it certainly brings it uh, kind of a holistic approach to that it, it's kind of neat um, now mm-hmm. this the album The Golden the Grey um, as far as songwriting were, were you guys when, you, when you're in the studio just kind of bounce the ideas off each other or does someone go and sit in you know a storage closet somewhere and try to hash out an idea on their own and bring it back to you guys or how does that do you guys end up I mean with, honestly you know, it was it was all of the above I mean for I mean some things you know, somebody would say, "Hey, I have this chord progression that I wrote at home." Mm-hmm. Bam! Here you go. Let's 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 work on this. Here's a here's a here's a drum beat I want to use. Okay, let's let's mm-hmm. try to do something with that. Sometimes it's that. Sometimes it's uh, some, we'll split into um, like you know teams. Like for example, the song Kanoskura started with me. I mean, that's kind of a segue piece. But anyway, started with with me just you know working, just like warming up really. Right. And then Nick joined me. And then we're like, oh, this is actually a really cool groove. Let's work on this. And we, John and Gina, and then they added the guitar parts, you know. And then, and then, uh, Pale Sun started with a bass line that we had from a jam session in Philly, and and that's really all we had. And and then the rest of it is just us just playing in the studio in uh, with Dave Friedman, you know. And then other songs were written in a more traditional Baroness way which would be me sending John some drum tracks and then him mm-hmm. writing a series of progressions and riffs and then us getting together and then just you know chiseling right. away at it do you like the the 
idea of doing it in the studio, you know, writing in the studio when the, you know, for lack of a better term, the meter's running as far as you've got a producer there and it costs. Do you, do you guys kind of thrive on that pressure or is that something maybe the next time you'd like to do a little more pre-production, you know, when it's not you know, quite as... It, that's, that's, that's a good question because Purple was, like I said, we were playing prepared. This time we're not as prepared. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, it wasn't, a, it was not an intentional decision to do it like mm-hmm. that. It's just how it turned out. Sure. But we sort of embraced that. You know, it's it does feel at times a little bit stressful or yeah. indulgent to be paying for studio time where you're not totally ready. But on the other hand, it's it adds this total level of excitement. Yeah. You know, like we like we need to do something cool now. We need to make this work. I'm, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm good. Sorry, I, we're actually okay. packing up the, the, the bus right now. Um, so it, it it adds this level of um, you know, of just excitement and spontaneity that sometimes sometimes you can work something to death. Yeah, and it's something absolutely. That I, it, Baroness is a pretty analy- analytical band. We do think things through. We discuss a lot of stuff. We debate musically everything. You know, it's not one of those bands where it's like. Just you know, first take. You know, we're not yeah. we're not that kind of band. So, considering that it is, it was kind of nice to sort of set some limits on how yeah, the deadline helped you thought out we could be. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, you end up with and, that. You know, and, and, and I think for, for for other bands, it works in the opposite way. Like if you're a band that does like the first take is the best take mm-hmm. magic. Maybe for one album, you should just actually write everything out and discuss everything and you know record demos and whatever sometimes, sometimes it's good to you know make up rules like right. for a game yeah yeah it's good to sometimes the bands will analyze things to death when they have you know kind of unlimited studio time or unlimited time to write you know you end up taking yeah. eight nine ten months to make an album that, that yeah. becomes bloated and very over analyzed it, it, it's also the curse of the of the of the computer you know i mean i yeah. I I saw I saw in a recording studio and I'm old enough that you know, we have both have Pro Tools and tape, mm-hmm. and it was a very, it's different very different way of working with a tape you're like a you know you you do three takes of the song and you choose the one the band likes the best and yeah. that's it yeah and then, and then you overdub the vocals and a guitar solo and then you move on yeah and then you mix it once with the board and that's yeah. it <laughs> and you're done you know yeah you can remix way, it the, the twenty years later now it's just like it's like you can constantly be tinkering. Yeah, and that 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 I think can be a curse for some bands. You know, there there are bands yeah. out there that can tinker it to death and take the human yes. feel out of it. Uh, so yeah, that, that's great to know. Well, Sebastian, I don't, I don't want to keep you. I know obviously you're busy as heck right now. Um, and, oh no, it's all good. Thank you so and, much. Uh, Want to. Wish you guys the best tour. We'll see you in just a little over a week here, actually in a week in Pittsburgh at uh, Mr. Smalls on the 17th. And I wish you uh, all the best until you get here. I love that. I love that venue. All right. Next up on Iron City Rocks, we have joining us on the line will be uh, the rock doc himself, Neil Ratner. Uh, Neil, uh, at one point, an anesthesiologist, tour manager, uh, radio DJ. you can kind of see which doesn't fit in that uh, list of careers and vocations, but uh, is now a writer. Uh, we're going to talk to him about his book, uh, Rock Doc. Uh, fascinating stories that go back uh, in his time with some of classic rock and pop rock and, frankly, the king of pop, 
uh, his interaction with uh, some of the biggest names in musical history. So without further ado, we're going to talk to the rock doc, Neil Ratner. We have on the line Dr. Neil Ratner. How are you doing? Hey, what's going on today? How's everybody out there? We're all doing well here in, in uh, sunny Pittsburgh for a change. Uh, we're headed into the summer months, so it's good weather. Um, you earlier this year released uh, your memoirs, The Rock Doc. Um, you've got sort of, when you look down through your body of work, almost like two different worlds, but they do kind of come together. Can you talk about, uh, it looks like you were a budding musician at one point. Um, can you kind of talk about you know, how you got into the music business? Yeah, well, actually, I started out as a kid. I like to say that I had rhythms running around my brain, and I had to get them out in any way I could. Mm -hmm. So much to my parents' dismay, you know, I was uh, banging silverware on the table and banging my knees and everything else. Finally, they realized that I was serious. I started to take drum lessons, and, you know, as I went on through uh, high school, I joined the uh, orchestra and the band, and I had a little band on the side. And as most of the kids who grew up in my generation, you know, my great hope was that we would get a record deal and I'd become a rock star. Sure. <laughs> of course, it didn't happen for most of us, didn't happen for me. And the other dream I had was to be a, uh, a doctor. And so um, I applied to college, got into uh, a few, chose the University of Vermont. And then a curious thing happened uh, between my sophomore and junior year of college. I took an apartment in the city. I had a gig at a training program uh, to be an operating room technician, which mm. I thought would help me get into medical school later on. And um, I moved into an apartment on the East Village of uh, Manhattan in the summer of 69. And shortly after I moved in, I started to hear live music coming from upstairs. Being a musician or a formal musician or a struggling wannabe musician, sure. I had to go and investigate. And so uh, I knock on the door. Guy opens the door. He's got a guitar slung on his shoulder. Don't really recognize him. He invites me in and he tells me his name is Rick Derringer. I might not have recognized him, but I certainly recognized the name. Sure. And I knew of yeah. him from the McCoys. And, you know, and Rick and I uh, bonded. We became very friendly. I had a little band that summer. He went and heard my band, realized that I was a good musician. And when I left to go back to college, I said, uh, hey, get me a gig. You know, I've had it with school. I'm ready to be a drummer again. Sure. About eight months later, he called me. And uh, lo and behold, he didn't ask me to be a drummer. You know, he, he had started working with Johnny Winter. Mm -hmm. And uh, Johnny had a brother named Edgar. And sure. Edgar had a band. And uh, I thought he was going to ask me to be the drummer of the band. And he asked me to be the road manager. And that started about a five, six-year odyssey in the business end of the business. Did you continue to go to school at this time, or did you kind of put your, your education on hold? Because obviously the training to become an anesthesiologist is extremely intense. Yeah, no, I walked out of school. I okay. walked out of college uh, with very few credits. And, you know, at that point, uh, my intention was never to go back. Sure. So I would make my career in the rock and roll business. Yeah. And no. it was only later, you know, after five or six years that I had this epiphany. I was in London and I got kidney stones. And mm -hmm. I was in a hospital and I saw a movie about American residents becoming doctors. And I said, you know what? Now I'm going to go back and become the doctor. And then it took 10 years before I could actually practice as an anesthesiologist. 
Yeah. Now, did you continue when, when you went back? You know, it was almost like you had kind of two different lives there. Um, did you continue to to do anything in the music industry once you went back to school or were just kind of checked out at that point? Well, certainly for the first couple of years, I checked out. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to go back to college uh, and I'd worked very hard and summers and nights and then I couldn't get into an American medical school because, you know, th- back then, now and always, there's just not enough spots. Sure. And so um, there were foreign medical schools that were catering to the overflow of American students. And I had to go to uh, medical school in Mexico in Spanish. And that was four years. And then I got back uh, into the American system by doing a year of unpaid internship, thought I wanted to be a surgeon, did a couple of years of surgery, and then finally did an anesthesia residency. So it was really a uh, quite a long, hard road, you know, to go from uh, rock and roll to, to a legitimate doctor. Sure. Now, uh, when you were as a road manager, can you give, I mean, that's something that, you know, I don't think a lot of people are really familiar with what the road manager does i mean other than you know how we see them depicted in spinal tap or uh perhaps yeah, right. in, you know in, in the dirt uh than the new motley crew movie can you give, give us an idea of what your day in that position especially in that era you know 70s yeah you know, well you know 70s it, it, was it a different changed time. a bit you know it would it would depend to a certain amount uh to a certain extent it would depend on the how famous the group was Mm-hmm. I mean, the routine was pretty much the same, but whether you were jumping into a station wagon or a limo and a Learjet, you know, depended on the, the level of the group. But basically, sure. you know, road manager is the manager on the road. So any kind of duties that the manager would have, the road manager has to do that, which means, you know, you get up in the morning, uh, you make sure that the group gets to wherever it needs to go. You make sure the hotel is okay. You get them to the sound check. You make sure the gig is right. You know, sound and lighting okay. Venue okay. Uh, Get them back to the hotel. If they're going back to the hotel, then get them back to the gig in time. Make sure everything is set up and your production is right and your sound mixer is cool. Get them on stage. Check the venue, make sure that the sound and light look and sound good all over the place. Go collect the money, get the group off the stage, uh, get them on for an encore if they need to be, uh, get them back to the hotel and start all over again the next day. Now, just to compare and contrast your life as an anesthesiologist, do you get sleep in either role? Because when you talk about the road manager position, it sounds like, you know, you're... I don't even know how you could sleep, but I know, you know, anesthesiologists are constantly on call. And if you're lucky, you get to sleep in an on-call room or something like that. Um, Do you think that that maybe conditioned you for that line of work? No question about it. (laughs) There were more similarities than you can imagine. But uh, being able to function on very little sleep was certainly uh, one that both jobs (laughs) <laughs> were very prominent in. Yeah, but yeah. I, I think I, I certainly got conditioned in the rock and roll business for later years of residency and vice versa. When you were in the role of road manager, um, you know, I think a lot of people think, boy, that would be really cool to be on tour with fill in the blank, you know, especially 
you know, when you think of some of the, you know, I think of like the song remains the same. Some of the, the you know, the nostalgia of the seventies bands. Did, when when you work in that capacity, though, do you really get to enjoy, um, you know, performances that the band is putting on, or is that just ninety minutes you get to actually maybe catch your breath, or you're sitting there panicked that, uh, you know, a head's going to blow on an amp, or a, you know, there's going to be a lighting problem. Is there any downtime or any chance to soak in what you're doing? You know, uh, that's a good question. And, and basically, I would say not that much. Hmm. Yes, it, you know, the performance, if it goes an hour and a half, if it goes two hours, maybe 15, 20 minutes, you know, you could sit down after you've done everything that you had to do and before you have to start doing everything that you have to do. Sure. Maybe you could catch your breath and sit down and, and enjoy and listen. But again, you know, you're working. And sure. when you're working, it's a different mindset. Mm -hmm. And even if you get that 15 or 20 minutes, you're not, a, it's not like, you know, being in your bedroom, smoking a joint and listening to the dark side of the moon album. Right. <laughs> you know, it, it's just not the same thing. And don't forget, I did these jobs in the analog age. Sure. Before cell phones, before computers, mm -hmm. which made everything a hundred times more difficult. Uh, you know, pay telephones on the road and things like that. Yeah. So, uh, no, it was, it was constant rock 24 seven and it was a tough gig. It wasn't easy. You, you mentioned getting the money and I think of, you know, I, I believe it was in, in, um, the song remains the same where you, you kind of see Peter, you know, having to get kind of rough with promoters. Was that as big a problem as, you know, people may have thought back in that era to, to not get screwed by promoters and, and in that era. hundred percent, hundred percent. So I started off, I got this job as road manager, Red Winters White Trash. And mm -hmm. then after that, uh, a lawyer about a year later, you know, I pretty much had it and I was getting ready to look for another job anyway. And we parted on good terms, Edgar and I. And a lawyer told me about a manager named D'Anthony who was looking for a special assistant. And he was like a big-time manager. He managed Jay Giles, Humble Pie, Peter Frampton, Emerson Lake and Palmer. And, and I, I got the job to be his assistant. But one of my main jobs, one of the main reasons he hired me was to be the bad man. Back in the day, uh, nobody trusted anybody, and groups got paid essentially in cash. And so there was somebody like myself that had to go and the deals were sort of complicated, especially for the bigger groups and bigger venues sure. where you'd get, you know, X number of dollars after so many tickets were sold and Y number of dollars. after. So somebody actually had to go there and look at empty seats and count ticket stubs and collect the cash. Right. And that's what I did uh, for these groups. I did it for humble pie. I did it for Jake Giles. I did it for Emerson Lincoln Palmer. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, there were people who definitely tried to screw you or people who who cried the blues who didn't sell enough tickets, uh, can't pay in. But, you know, generally speaking, it was fortunate. I never ran into some of the problems that, that some other road managers ran into. I don't know if you know the famous story of Twigs Leiden. You know no. that story? Road no. manager for uh, the Allman Brothers? No, I'm not familiar with that. Well, back... Back in the day, back in the day, when the Allman Brothers were in a huge band and they were just playing clubs, they played a club in uh, in Buffalo, and Barry Oakley went to get the money. 
and they were supposed to get paid a thousand bucks for the two days that they paid that they played. And Aliota, the club owner, said, well, I ain't paying you. I'm only paying you 500 bucks because you came late one day. If you come and play tomorrow, I'll give you the other 500. And Barry didn't know what to do, argued with him a little and split. Twiggs was a very efficient uh, road manager, and he didn't take shit from nobody. And uh, Barry came back to the hotel, and he told Twiggs a story. And Twiggs pulled out his 10-inch hunting knife and went back to see Aliota. Well, long story short, Aliota ended up dead on the floor of the club, and Twiggs was arrested for murder. Now, the interesting part of the story is they hired, the Orman brothers hired the best lawyer that money could buy, right? And when the lawyer realized the kind of job that Twiggs had and the kind of lifestyle that they led, he decided that he would defend him based on a defense of insanity, that being a road manager for a group like the Allman Brothers back in the day would make you insane. And lo and behold, uh, he won the case. And Twiggs was sent to a mental institution for about six months, and that was the end of it. (laughs) You can see, I mean, when you list all the duties that you had to do, um, you know, considering the fact that, you know, no human really could sleep in that, you know, you're, you're kind of a babysitter, business manager, you know, travel agent. Totally. Um, all, yeah, all of the above. All right. of the above. And um, don't forget, you know, this was the 70s, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So right. a lot of this was drug-fueled behavior to begin with. Right. Yeah, and you look at, you know, this is the era before, you know, you mentioned about counting ticket stubs. Now, I mean, so much of, of the, the ticketing is, is done through, or almost, well, I should say all of the ticketing is done through electronics. So, you know, they probably have an extremely accurate count moments within people walking in the door you know you're scanning your phone to get into a venue yeah um you know it's a it's a certainly a very closed business model that live nation and Ticketmaster have uh being one and the same but um, they probably have extremely detailed analytics on who's there how much was paid how much was made um you know you know yeah it's the, the problems that you had in the past i'm sure don't exist now Sure. You certainly have. But back then, it was the Wild West, you know. It was the early days of rock and roll. All these things were just getting sorted out. Yeah, well, at least back in your day, you didn't have to worry about all the the, the backing tracks for the vocals and things that, you know, are potentially ruining live music experience now. But um, can I ask, you know, as you got back into, you got into anesthesiology, you know, and your medical license, et cetera. How did you get back into the world? Uh, you know, did it merge back into music? I know you, you worked with Michael Jackson, obviously. Um, was that in, in a patient? You know, I don't, obviously can't get too far into HIPAA yeah, with, with, with these days. But Yeah, no, no. But with, with Michael, you know, what happened was, so I spent five, six years in the business end of the business, you know, starting as road manager and then working through tour manager. And eventually I had my own production company. That's that's when I did the Dark Side of the Moon tour with, mm-hmm. with the Floyd. Uh, I co-produced that with my company. And then I did a couple more tours, and I ended up with kidney stones uh, in a London hospital. And I had this epiphany. I saw this movie and decided I'd become the doctor. After the 10 years, <laughs> uh, I wasn't quite uh, sure what kind of anesthesiologist I wanted to be. I knew I didn't want to be a normal anesthesiologist. Just, I couldn't mm. see myself sitting in a hospital, you know, every third night on call, whatever. And I looked around the world and I 
saw that people in various countries, in various states, various cities, were doctors were operating in their office. And I saw that in New York City, the doctors seemed to operate in their office there, but very small procedures, and no anesthesiologists were willing to devote themselves to office-based surgery. And there were reasons. Monitors were no good. Drugs were no good. Having a rock and roll experience, I thought I could do it. So I created, I was one of the creators of office-based anesthesiology in New York City. Eight years after I started, Michael walked in as a patient. Previous to that, though, I had already sort of re-entered the music business. I had a, uh, I had a client, you know, I would go from office to office. I would set up operating rooms for doctors, and then I would do the anesthesia. And I got involved in the fertility business uh, in the late 80s. And I had a, uh, a gynecologist fertility expert uh, who was my client. He had a girlfriend uh, who was a songwriter who I ended up managing for a couple of years. Her name was Denise Rich. And we set up a company called the Dream Factory, built a killer studio in New York City. So that was that was already in the early 90s before I met Michael. So I was sort of sneaking back into the business, sure. you know, uh, before that. And, and my relationship with Michael really had nothing to do with the music business. You know, he was a patient. He became a friend. Mm-hmm. And then he reached out to me because he was having problems. And so... I tried to help him with a, a treatment that I created for him, and I did for him periodically for about eight years. Right. Now, you know, when you look at, you know, some of the things you've been involved in, very entrepreneurial, uh, you know, in, in your – this is the one thing I think I see through, you know, your body of work. You're now – am I correct? You're working in radio at the moment? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, uh, that's uh, come quite by accident in a way. Um, as I've been developing the rock doc concept, you know, it's starting to branch out into more and more things. I always intended to do more than just the book. And, uh, when I started to write the book, I got involved with some people and I started a Facebook page, Neil Ratner rock doc, and I post my old experiences and, and all kinds of old stories on rock and roll, kind of like a today in rock kind of thing. And I do live videos, and and it's worked into a little slot on Radio Woodstock, the local radio station up here, where I do a uh, 20 to a half an hour show, 20 minutes to a half hour show on Saturdays called This Week in Rockin'. And I enjoy it, and we'll see. Maybe I'll expand that out into some kind of a syndicated show or do something more on social media. But, uh, yeah, yeah, it's worked into that, and who knows what it'll work into. Now, do you still practice medicine at this point? I mean, you've got to be incredibly busy if, if that's the case. No, I, um, again, my life took some incredible twists and turns, which people can read about in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I got into a bit of trouble uh, later in my medical practice, which um, uh, it was with the insurance companies. We We thought that they were going to pay for fertility procedures. They didn't. Uh, I worked with a doctor who felt that every woman deserved the right to have a baby, and we got caught up in a whole federal thing, and I ended up doing some time. Um, And I could have practiced when I got out, but I was so angry uh, at what had happened because six months after I got out of jail, uh, a law was passed in New York State that the insurance companies were mandated 
to at least cover the first fertility cycle. So there you go. So no, I, I decided that I was done. I never went back and practiced. Is that uh, so after that? That was it. Yeah, you kind of imagine that was. I mean, that career I think is has got to be a stressful thing. It's got to be kind of nice to to decompress after that. The process of writing the book. I mean, was that um, something? Did you, you keep a lot of of written details? You know, looking back on your career, or was it um, you know a lot of of stories and things you remember? You know, just from experience of, you know, I know a lot of people keep diaries and, and journals and things yeah, like that. Yeah, no, I kept nothing. Essentially, I kept nothing. <laughs> I took no pictures. <laughs> yeah, it might have been safer, though. So I had to, yeah, really. I mean, I had to reconstruct everything, you know, from my memories. And, you know, social media and the Internet's pretty cool because certainly in relation to Michael Jackson, you know, almost every day of his life is chronicled. So a yeah. lot of the stuff that I couldn't remember, I could actually find on the Internet to help refresh my memory. And then, of course, you know, I spoke to old friends, you know, mm -hmm. people that are still around in the business. And, you know, just to get my story straight and, and try and remember things correctly. But it's an interesting experience because, of course, when you write a book about your life and you look back on your life, you're looking at it from a whole different perspective. Yeah. And and as such, you remember it a little bit differently, I think. So it's an interesting experience, certainly a cathartic experience and a difficult one. You know, I don't know how many people out there have put themselves in front of a blank piece of paper in the morning and don't get up from your desk until the paper is filled. It's, it's, it's an interesting uh, challenge, yeah, especially, especially when, if you're not a writer. Yeah. And especially writing about your own life. I mean, it's one thing, you know, if you said, you know, Please go write some fiction or, you know, chronicle, you know, something, you know, that's one thing. But to, to sit and look at oneself, you know, and try to be objective. Um, you know, did you work with a, a writer or was this strictly your own work? No, this was strictly my work. I did it totally myself. But what I did do was I worked with a number of editors mm -hmm. uh, subsequent to finishing. You know, I had one major editor that I worked with as I was writing the book. Uh, you know, I'd write a chapter and then I'd throw it to the editor and she'd make suggestions. And, but it wasn't a ghostwriter. It was an editor. And then when I got ready to publish, uh, I had another editor uh, look at it. So it was edited by professional people, but it was 100% my words written by me. Which in and of itself, you know, in, in, and I've read a, a multitude of rock-based autobiographies and I can't think of any until asking you that question that was written by the person who lived it. You know, I think a lot of it is dictated by the person who lived it and then yeah. written by, you know, whomever. Uh, can I ask you? I didn't want to do that. I, I felt that it was important that the book was in my words. Sure. And as hard as it was going to be and as lousy as my English was, I figured an editor will fix it up, but at least it'll be me talking and I won't have to apologize for anything in the book because it's what I wrote. Sure. Can I ask you, you know, just for, you know, out of curiosity more than anything, you know, the final paperback book, I know it's like 300 plus pages. When you wrote it, how much of that ended up on the editing room floor? I mean, are there stories that just couldn't make it because of space or uh, things like that? You know, no, not really. I pretty much included everything that I wanted to include. You know, there were a couple of things that 
the editors convinced me I didn't need to put in because it mm. was getting pretty lengthy. Right. Um, but nothing really important. I feel very good about what's in the book, and I don't feel like I really left out that much. Now, of course, you know, as I talk to people and as I talk about the book, I remember things that I didn't remember before. Yes. Yeah. That maybe I would have put in if if I was writing the book today. But I'm pretty pleased with everything that's in there. That's fantastic. I know the book is available on Amazon, both for Kindle and in paperback. Can folks get that at um, like your website or, or where where all can we get? Yeah, the book? and also on Amazon is another interesting uh, way to read the book if you like audio books. I spent a lot of time and effort creating an audio book, which I read myself. And there's a lot of dialogue in the book, and I do all the accents, and they're terrible. But <laughs> if you like that sort of thing, a lot of people have come back to me and say, geez, that was a kick to listen to. But if you want if you want to get a book from my website, it's neilratnarockdoc.com. That's all one word, N-E-I-L-R-A-T-N-E-R-R-O-C-K-D-O-C.com. And if you buy the book off the website, I will be more than happy to autograph it in any way that you like. Awesome. And, and your show on, on Woodstock Radio, is that is that available in streaming if people want to check that out? It sounds like a, a kind of an interesting feature. It is. It's available in a couple of places. Actually, it's available live on Saturdays at 3 o'clock on iHeartRadio. Okay. If you just go onto the iHeart website and punch in uh, Radio Woodstock, WDST, you can get it. But also... On the WDST.com website, if you hit the audio tab, you'll see This Week in Rock. And if you hit that, all of the uh, reports are archived. Awesome. And there's some fun ones there. So. <laughs> awesome. Well, Neil, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your morning and, and, and talking to us about this. It, it should be a fantastic uh, Actually, I think I'm tempted to, for the audio book, you know, after listening to you tell some of these stories, I think I could, I could see that being a fun listen and, and certainly want to check out your show on Woodstock. And I really Yeah, John, it. it's pretty cool. The audio book is kind of a trip. Very hard to do, I might tell you. Not an easy thing to do. Yeah. I, I the microphone for nine hours or something. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine, you know, and just in what we do, um, trying to do a nine hour would be, uh, you know, a lot of work. Plus, you're you're you've got to read, you know, pretty true to what you wrote, as opposed to just uh, freewheeling. So, um, I don't want to envy that task, but it should be a fun thing to listen to. Yeah. Well, also to be the narrator, to be myself, mm -hmm. and to be everybody else, and to switch voices and remember which one I use was yeah. a real challenge. <laughs> that, that's a that's a great point. Who who had which funny voice and, and uh, when to use it appropriately? Exactly, exactly. You know, the director would say, no, no, wait, that's the wrong voice. That's the other guy's voice. <laughs> take two, take three, take four. Excellent. You got Neil. it. You got Neil, it. Neil, thank you so much, and we do appreciate it. John, I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for the time. Good chat, and uh, maybe we'll do it again sometime. Awesome. All right. Take care, Neil. All right. A big thank you to all of our guests today, Joseph Michael of Sanctuary, and also Sebastian Thomas of Baroness, and uh, Dr. Neil Ratner, uh, Baroness, and... Uh, Sanctuary will both be in Pittsburgh on July 17th, uh, as we said earlier. Uh, Baroness at Mr. Small's Theater in Millvale, and also uh, the Craft House will be housing the Sanctuary Show. Uh, you can get information on those at our website, ironcityrocks.com. Also, uh, thank you to Dr. Neil Ratner for coming on and talking about his, his book, The Rock Doc. You can get that at Neil Ratner 
rockdoc.com. Uh, it should be a fascinating book for anybody who's interested in in the kind of the history and some of the behind the scenes stories in music. So, I want to thank all of our guests. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. You can visit us at ironcityrocks.com or on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, YouTube are all forward slash Iron City Rocks. So you can get to us uh, on any of those. You can email us at ironcityrocks at gmail.com. Love to hear from you about what you like about the show, what you don't like about the show. Do you like long episodes? Do you like short episodes? Do you like classic metal? Do you like new metal? Do you like uh, classic rock? Let us know. I'd love to any feedback you have. So and until next time, we want to thank you for listening. Yeah.